Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week I'm basically doing short attention span podcast. It is an episode where I'm going to talk about a variety of different things, but none of them actually relate to each other. But that's sometimes fun too, and uh, you'll see as you go along different topics, different interests, that sort of thing, and hopefully a laugh or two along the way. And I thought I would start off with a story that I told a couple of weeks ago when I was on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. And it's a story that I had never told anyone publicly before, but I figured just in case you didn't listen to that and you're a loyal listener to this, I would tell you the story. And it involves Mary Tyler Moore. Now, as some of you know, my partner David Isaacs and I created a show for her back in 1985 called, surprisingly enough, Mary. And this was a period of her career. She had done her sitcom, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, which of course was a huge iconic hit. And then she tried a couple of comebacks. She did a variety show for CBS, and that bombed. And midway through that season, they changed the format and made it kind of a hybrid variety slash sitcom. And that didn't work either. But then she went off and did movies, And most notably, she did Ordinary People and got an Academy Award nomination for it. And so for about five, six years, she had a pretty decent feature career. Well, that was starting to stall. She was in a couple of movies that were just terrible. She was in one with Dudley Moore that I remember was a huge bomb. And she was finding out that she was getting offered all of the roles that people like Jane Fonda were turning down. So at the time, figure this is now mid-80s. Remember, Bill Cosby had just come back to TV with The Cosby Show, and it was a huge hit. He was getting 40, 50 shares, and it was such a big deal that it pretty much turned around comedies because there was a period in the early 80s where people were saying that sitcoms were dead and a lot of sitcom writers were writing spec light hour shows like Magnum P.I. and Simon and Simon and that type of thing. But once Cosby hit the air, all of that changed. So Mary was 
convinced by CBS that if she came back to television and did another sitcom, it too would be a huge event and she would be getting 40 shares. And so she said, well, okay, what kind of deal are you going to give me? And they said, we'll give you 13 on the air. And so she took it. And long story short, David and I were uh, invited to create it. And, and we took it. And one of the reasons why, and even though, yeah, how do you follow the Mary Tyler Moore show? And that was certainly a question that we asked a number of times. But they were saying, look, enough time has passed since the end of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And back then, you know, it wasn't uh, streaming and, you know, you couldn't get DVDs of them anytime you wanted. Look, uh, how much were they going to pay us? Yeah, we let all of that stuff slide. But the main reason why we decided to take on this project was this. Growing up, I loved Mary Tyler Moore. I absolutely adored Mary Tyler Moore. And one of the reasons why I became a writer was because when I was a kid, an impressionable youth, hormones exploding, I would watch the Dick Van Dyke show and I was just in love with Laura Petrie. And the thought that you could get a Laura Petrie by being a comedy writer, that you didn't have to throw a football, that you didn't have to be a jock, that you didn't have to be a a surfer, this to me was unbelievable. It's like, my God, there's hope for geeks like me. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to be a comedy writer was in order to get a girl like Mary Tyler Moore. And I love the Mary Tyler Moore show. And here was a chance to actually work with Mary. Okay, all of that is background. We did the show. It lasted 13 weeks. It was not as pleasurable an experience as we had hoped. I'm still very proud of the episodes. In fact, if you go to YouTube and you type in Mary 1985, I posted and a couple of other people have also posted some of the episodes. And I invite you to watch them. Check it out. Check out the pilot and a couple of the shows. I think they're really good. We had James Ferentino. We uh, discovered Katie Segal. It was her first job. We had John Aston. It's really a good cast, and it was really a good show. The problem was when it premiered, it did not get a 45 share. It only got a 26 share, but it was put up against the number one show of the week. Now, when you consider that today... If a show gets a three share, they get renewed for 17 years. Back then, in 1985, a 26 share was still something like 40 million people. But once we weren't getting those kind of 40 share, groundbreaking, unbelievable numbers, then Mary basically just threw in the towel and said, I'm done, I don't want to do this. And then the rest of the show was dragging a dead horse across the finish line to shoot it. Okay, that's background on the show. But here's the story that I want to tell. And it involves one night that my wife and I invited Mary to come and have dinner with us. 
on a Saturday night because Mary lived in New York, but she was out in Los Angeles just renting. And we thought, you know, she's probably a little lonely. Why don't we just have her over for dinner? Which we did. It was very sweet. Uh, it was also my son's birthday, and she brought him a gift, and you know, it was lovely. But there was this point early on in the evening when I'm sitting with Mary in our living room, and my wife is back in the kitchen, and she's preparing the hors d'oeuvres or the wine, whatever. And Mary and I start talking about the Dick Van Dyke show. And she makes a point of saying, you know, we had double beds back then. And I said, yeah, I know, it was always a little weird. And she said, yeah, well, that was, you know, network kind of thing. And she said, when am I supposed to fuck Rob? And I have to tell you, hearing Laura Petrie say those words in my living room was absolutely surreal. You know, when when am I going to fuck Rob? So uh, so that was my Mary Tyler Moore uh, story, and it is one that I have taken with me and cherished for some reason never told before. But there you go. My character wouldn't say that. Now, that is a line that strikes fear in the hearts of all screenwriters. And at one time or another, we all encounter an actor who will rebel against a line or a speech. And it's very annoying, and it's oftentimes infuriating. But the real problem with that is they're usually right. After all, they spend a lot more time with those characters, they internalize those characters, and once they explain to you their problem, if in fact they are articulate, then oftentimes you just have to kind of shake your head and go, yeah, yeah, okay, you you do have a point. Now, that's not always the case. There was a show in the 80s, remember Hill Street Blues? It was produced by Stephen Bochco, and the star was Daniel J. Trevanti. He played a character named Ferrillo. And there was one day on the set where he balked at a certain speech, and he called Stephen Bochco down. And Stephen Bochco comes down to the set and says, what's the matter, Daniel? And he said, uh, well, my character wouldn't say this. Bochco said, let me see the script. Show me the line. And he shows him the line. And Stephen Bochco says, well, wait, I, I don't understand. It says Ferrillo here. So obviously Ferrillo does say the line, say the line. And he turned around and walked out. This is really cool and pretty damn gutsy. I could never do that, actually. Um, you know, I, I like to be in a collaborative situation with an actor. And like I said, usually actors make good points about their characters. And there are some actors who are very good about delivering notes, and they're very diplomatic. Case in point, Nick Colasanto, who played the coach on Cheers. Now, he rarely had problems with lines, and he was pretty astute. He also used to be a director. He directed a lot of episodes of Hawaii Five-0, the original one, the good one, the only good one. But if he had a problem, he would come up to us, and the first thing he would say was, I will do it this way. I'm happy to do it the way it is written, but I have a problem, and then he would explain what it is. And the truth is, 
the fact that he said he would do it as written, we would change it no matter what. Even if we disagreed with him, we would change the line. He understood. Other actors will talk and talk and talk and talk, and you just don't know what it is that's bothering them. Uh, You just wish they would say what's really on their mind. And that's part of the problem, too, is that a lot of times actors will have personal agendas. So they will argue why they don't want to do the line because of their character, because of the situation, because of the story. But you know it's all bullshit that the real reason they have a problem with the line is because it doesn't make them look attractive enough. We had a situation once where an actress was going on and on about her her role in this episode and how we were so off base. And the truth is that we had hired an actor to play her boyfriend and she didn't think he was attractive enough. So if he's not attractive enough, then she would not be perceived of as attractive enough. And that was the issue. And so all the talk about the uh, character and the situation and the motivation and all like that, that was just complete bullshit. Like I said, she had a personal agenda. We have problems with that. You know, I have as a showrunner, I have big problems with actors counting lines. If an actor counts lines, I'm done. The other thing that drives me crazy is when stars will take jokes away from other actors and then take them themselves. This is a situation I could never work in. I would last five minutes when uh, an actor did that. And there's a number of cases of sitcoms where the uh, star, usually the name of the show is the name of the star, and they would uh, take jokes away from the other actors because they, A, don't want the other actors to upstage them and uh, get laughs, and B, because they want all of the laughs themselves. Again, can't stand that kind of behavior. Uh, One thing that actors will do from time to time is they will switch lines, but they're not really ad-libs. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Robin Williams, when he was on Mork and Mindy, he would shoot that show in front of a live audience and he would do a scene and then they would repeat the scene. He would have a new line, a new great joke. They would repeat the scene a third time and he would have a third great line. And even if they reshot the scene four times, Robin Williams, right off the top of his head, would have four great ad-libs. The problem was they were not ad-libs at all. They were lines written by writers. Those were jokes that were in the script during the course of the week that got replaced. But the audience didn't know that, and Robin was not about to point to the writers and thank them. Robin took credit for that. And again, for the audience, it was like, this guy's just unbelievable. This guy just comes up with brilliant lines right off the top of his head. Actually, that was not the case at all. 
I've had very good luck personally dealing with actors. Like I said, you know, I'm open to hearing what their problems are. And most of the time I will agree with them. I don't believe in making an actor say a line that he really doesn't like. But there was one time when I kind of got into it with an actor, and this is Thomas Hayden Church, and this was Wings. Now, let me say right off the bat that I really like Tommy. He's a good guy. I've known him for a long time. I was a consultant on the show from the pilot all the way on. So I knew the cast. I had a good relationship with the cast. I still do. I still bump into cast members from time to time. And the first show that I ever directed was an episode of Wings. And it made it a whole lot easier, obviously, the fact that I knew the cast and the cast knew me and some of the crew people knew me as well. But this particular episode was centered on Tommy Hayden Church's character, Lowell. So uh, I spent an awful lot of time with him and worked with him on a lot of moments and character beats, uh, yada, yada. So now it's the night that we film the show. We have a studio audience, and there's one particular scene. I remember it was in the terminal, and Tom ad-libbed a line. And I'm now sitting with the other producers in front of the four monitors, and the producers said, what's that? And I said, I don't know. I've never heard him do that before. I'll go out and get him to read the line as written. So I walked out onto the stage and I said, hey, Tommy, uh, do me a favor for this take. Do the line as written. He said, okay. I went back. Once again, action. He does another line. Now, I'm getting a little pissed and the producers are getting a little more than pissed. And Again, I walked out onto the stage. I said to him, Tommy, look, we're going to get the line as written. Now, you can either do it now or after the audience goes home, we'll just keep you guys and we will shoot pickups take after take after take until we get this one line. Let's save everybody a lot of time and trouble and do the line as written. And he nodded and said, okay. I go back to the quad split, which is what we call the four cameras, Once again, take three, ready, and action. And he does another ad lib. Well, the producers by now are almost apoplectic. And I settle them down and I say, I'll get the line and I'll get it on this take. I strolled out onto the stage and I put my arm around Tommy with our backs to the audience so that the audience wouldn't hear what was being said. And I said to him in a very lovely tone, I said, Tommy, if you don't do the line as written in this take, I am going to punch your fucking face in. And he laughed and he smiled and he said, okay, I went back, ready, take four, Take five, whatever it was, action. He did the line, and we moved on. So that's the only time that I've had a problem with an actor reading a line and have told him that I would beat the shit out of him. (laughs) It's just part of the business 
actors refusing to do lines. Well, network development season is in full swing, and one staple that never seems to go out of style is the procedural drama. Fame, fortune, and a spinoff with Chicago at the end of the title can be yours if you just follow my simple rules. If you're driving right now, you might want to pull over to the side so that you can make some notes. Number one, your star must have some supernatural power. He or she can read minds, has an amazing photographic memory, can remember every lunch that he or she ever had, is a math whiz, or the most common can see fairy tale characters. Ah, but with this gift must come a curse. They must be tortured emotionally. They must have a dark past. Their wife slash sibling slash child slash imaginary friend has been killed and they're still haunted by it. Now, they're only helping the police to solve crimes as a way of better getting in touch with resolving that unresolved circumstance of their dark, dark past. The killer is still out there, but... Only week one and the season finale. Otherwise, it's just business as usual, solving crimes and tossing off zingers. When we go home with the hero, we see that he's lonely. He can't really get close to anybody because he's so damaged, you see. He compensates for no social skills by possessing this wondrous ability to bend spoons with his mind. And the hero must have a code. Oh, sure, he can come off as a cynic or she could come off as a bitch, but ultimately, they're the champion of the little people. The hero must have a partner of the opposite sex who finds him slash her infuriating, but is totally dependent on him slash her. Now, the partner is always somewhat of an idiot. He enters the crime scene and every week comes to the same wrong conclusion. Only our hero, with his snazzy power, is perceptive enough to surmise what is really going on. And if the partner wasn't already dumb enough, he has to argue with the hero. The hero ultimately turns out to be right. Now, the hero must be surrounded by an investigative team, They stand around, provide exposition, and chase the bad guys. See, one of the great things about having a superpower means you never have to actually run. The team should be young and attractive and diverse, and one member must somehow be quirky. Note, if it's a CBS show, at least one attractive member must also be a brunette. You throw in some grisly murder, a cool stylized squad room. Who knew that police stations looked like the penthouse restaurant in the Seattle Space Needle? And you toss in a former major TV star or two, and you got a five-year run. So get going. A cop who channels Columbo. A detective who can go forward in time five minutes a forensic expert who can communicate with inanimate objects, a coroner who can break down the ingredients in food without having to refer to the packaging. Why, the possibilities are endless, and all I ask in return 
is the following credit based on a tired formula by Ken Levine. Let's all go out there and get rich. This is Hollywood and Levine. And that will do it for a short attention span podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and Howard Hoffman. I am available anytime via email, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. And you can see the hilarious pictures that I post on Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.